We're in the final stretch here of the season of Lent. We're getting closer and closer, approaching uh, Resurrection Day in just two weeks, otherwise known as Easter Sunday. And um, these are the days when our thoughts turn more and more to what is surely the most important week in the history of all of mankind, and that is the week that culminates with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today I want to start with a a series of teachings this morning. We're going to take a fresh look at the cross that is at the center of our faith and discover what is going on with the cross, what is the power of this cross. Everybody knows what a cross is, right? We see the cross everywhere. Today, you even see it. It's like part of the logo for companies. You know, it's, it's, it's a symbol. It's, it's the logo of our church. We have a, a form of a cross there in the center of things. Uh, anybody ever seen a cross on a piece of jewelry? Amen. Sure, you, you might be wearing one right now. Have you ever seen someone wearing a cross and it sort of surprised you and made you wonder, I wonder why they are wearing the cross? Like, what do they think it means? But it does raise all sorts of questions. What does the cross mean? What does the cross mean for us? I suspect if a lot of people here would say, uh, sure, I believe in the cross, and, and their answer would probably be because Jesus died for my sins, and someday I'm going to heaven. He died on the cross, for which we praise God for. We are so glad for that. But my question would be, what effect, what difference does the cross make right now? What about in the morning? What does the cross mean for you and me today, tomorrow, Tuesday. So we're going to explore uh, not only what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago, but like what does the cross mean for us when you go to school, when you go to work, when you drive in traffic? What does the cross mean later today when you're dealing with the people you have to meet up with somebody, maybe you've had a few rough exchanges with before, somebody there's a little bit of weird blood between you. What does the cross mean for how we actually live right now. What does the cross mean for what I post on social media this afternoon? So for the next few weeks, I'd like to explore this, and we're going to look at a couple of different ways also that uh, historically Christians have tried to explain what was happening on the cross. What is going on there? And what actually did Jesus, why did he have to die? That's a big question that people have. Why did he have to die? But on a deeper level, what we really want to ask is, what is God saying to us today through the cross. So to start with, we have to go back and take an intimate look at what happened on that cross, historically, physically, before we can get get to sort of the galactic ramifications of it all. So we're going to start today in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The book of Matthew, we're going to start in chapter 21. Um, If you're new to the Bible, there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. And what's interesting about them that they all have in common is they move really rapidly through the life of Jesus. They're not like a typical autobiography you would read today where you like get into every little detail of a person's life when they were a kid and then when they were a teenager and this kind of stuff and what their favorite color was and what they liked to eat. and during the, It doesn't quite move like that. They're all telling the stories of Jesus' life and they zip along. Like really, it's, it's a nice quick read until you get to the last hours of Jesus' life. So if you read the Gospels like a movie, it would be this movie where the scenes just like fly through from birth to adulthood. And then he would slow down for the last half of the movie to the very last hours of his life. 
And when you get there, they, they move down, you would get more detail. It's almost like the Gospels are kind of like, almost like the, the introduction to the passages about his death. And so when it gets to Jesus, we get a lot more detail. The writers take their time letting us know what is happening moment by moment by moment. And I want to I want us to start off this series by looking at those events in an intimate way, uh, maybe from the perspective of Jesus, if we can at all try to get, see things through his eyes. So in Matthew 21, starting verse 23, this is, this is right towards these last week or so of his life. It says, when he entered the temple, Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? These kind of questions always put me in a great mood, don't they, you? When someone uh, just questions your motives, tells you what gives you the right, uh, essentially, essentially they're saying, who do you think you are? This, this puts us in a wonderful mood, doesn't it? The God of the universe who created everything, every atom, every particle, every person, he comes to this earth and his little, his little walking creations are questioning his, his credentials. What are you, how, who are you to say this? How dare you do these things? Part of me just believes like Jesus, if he was a southerner, would just go, bless your hearts, right? Because we know what that means. That's a, that's a devastating comment down here in the south. Bless your hearts. Um, that's got to be what he was thinking. Okay, turn ahead a couple chapters. Uh, in, verse, in chapter 26, verse 14, then one of the 12, these are his most intimate followers, his disciples, his friends. One of the 12 who was called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what would you give me if I betray him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas began to look for an opportunity to betray him. So one of his most intimate friends, one of his disciples, who spent three straight years being with Jesus, living with him, camping out, traveling with Jesus, eating with him, learning from him at his feet, discussing all the amazing questions of life. You and I would just love to have that opportunity to discuss with Jesus. He's, Jesus has poured his life into Judas, and Judas is behind his back negotiating how to sell him out. And they agree upon 30 silver coins. The price that Judas put on his friendship with Jesus was about $600. 30 silver coins. Later it says this. Jesus then went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be grieved and agitated. And then Jesus said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, what you want. And verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them, what does your text say? Sleeping. He, great friends, these guys. And he said to Peter, So, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away for the second time. In verse 43, he says, Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So his best friends are not able to stay awake with him. They're not there for him in his time of need. Verse 44, 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time and saying the same words. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? So people are questioning his motives. They're questioning his authority, his credentials. One of his best friends is going behind his back to negotiate how to sell him out. And then here in his time of greatest need, he's like, oh, my body is weak. I'm feeling it down into my soul. And his closest allies can't, can't hang. They can't stay awake. Later on, after he's arrested, he's turned over to the Sanhedrin, which is a religious court. And they interrogate him. Verse 65, it says, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has blasphemed. Verse 66, he says, what is your, they say, what is your verdict? They answered, he deserves death. And then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, which was a, a sign of insult. You slapped someone that you did not believe was your equal. And in verse 68, saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, who is it that struck you? So if we're keeping score, his friends have fallen asleep on him. Other friends are betraying him behind his back. The religious establishment is questioning his authority. They don't even believe who he says he is. They spit in his face. They're punching him in the face. They're slapping him, mocking him, belittling his claims. Verse 69 says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he went out into the porch, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I swear to you, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are also one of them for your accent betrays you. He had that East Texas twang going on. They could tell. And he began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. You can just see guilt, uh, Peter, he's, his guilt has him on this edge of like a nervous breakdown here, I think. He, he's, he's cracking. So one of your best friends denies that he even knows you. We can skip to the next chapter, verse, chapter 27, verse 27. It says, then the soldiers took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole cohort. That'd be about 500 soldiers, 500 soldiers are taking time out of their day to make sure Jesus is as miserable as possible. They all gathered around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And the word used there means repeatedly. They struck him repeatedly around it, uh, on his head. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. They make him carry his own cross for a while. And then in verse 41, it tells us, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, these are the religious leaders, are mocking him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. 
And here there's two bandits who were crucified with him and they also taunted him in the same way. So in this story, we are given every imaginable thing that could happen to somebody. And notice if we were just to make a list of all these things, he, Jesus is he's questioned, he's betrayed, he's deserted, he's denied, he's spit on, he's punched in the face, he's slapped, mocked, stripped naked, he's insulted, he's beaten, he's whipped, he's lied about, he's falsely accused, convicted, condemned, crucified, humiliated, scorned, pierced, bruised, rejected, hated, stared at, left naked, in public to die, and then killed. This is the story of all the things that happened to Jesus. And most scholars believe even the writers, the way they presented it to us, it's probably cleaned up a bit. So what is his response to all of these things that happened to him? Now, let's go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Notice what Luke says. The two others, those, those two bandits, who were also criminals, they were led away to put, be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And so Jesus, referring to the very people who are, are killing him, his attitude is, God, please forgive them. They, they really don't know what they're doing. His response is forgiveness. Jesus' response is forgiveness. Then he says this, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Uh, the, the first criminal saying, he rebuked the first criminal saying, do, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly. We're getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so throughout these these chapters, these many details that we get of Jesus' death, he doesn't say a whole lot. But when he does, the few times he does open his mouth, we hear his heart is bent on forgiveness. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And invitation. And then turn over to the book of John. In John chapter 19, there's a couple of other final pictures we get of how Jesus responds to what's, what's done to him. In verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, standing near the cross, so Jesus is hanging on the cross, standing near the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, ah. She's a hero. When Jesus saw his mother and, his disi- and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, just referring to John. John's right in the book, so he likes to call himself the disciple who Jesus loved. <laughs> he sees his mother standing next to John. He said to his mother, woman, here is your son. The word, the word he uses for woman here, it's not disrespectful. It would be, in their language, what a, a, a man would be expected to address an, an older lady. Like we would say ma'am or something like that, ma'am. So he says, Ma'am, here's your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So here's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's probably naked. 
He's been whipped and beaten in the head, spit on. The crowds are yelling at him. And his thoughts, while he's dying for the sins of the world, right? He, the, the whole universe is about to change here. But his thoughts include, I'm the oldest son. So who's going to care for my mother when I'm gone? And so he says to one of his disciples, hey, take my mom and take care of her. Make sure you take care of her. So when we're given these pictures of how Jesus responds to what's done to him, all of this is being done to him, what, what do we see? Forgiveness, invitation, and caring. Like, that's out of all proportion. I've got to make sure my mom's okay through all of this. Now, after the resurrection, after his death and his resurrection, there's a period of time there. And eventually the disciples make their way. They sort of escape out of town. They head north back to the region of Galilee. They don't really have anything to do. And so the picture we see them is they, they kind of go back to their, their old life. They're kind of just slipping back to what they knew before. They're, they're fishing. They're back, on the, they're back to work. What they did before. And Jesus, it says, appears on the shoreline and he calls out to their boats. And they realize it's him and they pull up their nets and the nets are full of fish. And Peter's one of his best friends. Peter puts on his clothes and jumps in the water and, and just swims to the shore to go see him. This is the same Peter who betrayed him, who denied him three times. And he runs up to Jesus and Jesus says, bring me some fish. And so they, they bring him some of the, the catch of the day that they just hauled in. And in John 21, it says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And so, so this is Jesus. He spent probably, you know, he spent a few years now telling them, listen, I'm going to suffer and die. This is going to happen. This is all part of the plan. And then, don't worry, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise from the dead. He's, he's told them this. He's explained this to them. But when it actually happens, instead of, of being full of faith and what he had said, all of them just desert him. They all desert him. They deny him. They try to just slip back into their old lives. And when Jesus shows up on the beach that day, you would think Jesus would be walking up on the beach going, well, 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 I bet you didn't expect to see me again. Oh, you bunch of sorry backstabbing. You're going to get it now. Yeah, right? This is what, what you expect. You don't see this at all. He's like, hey, guys, you want some breakfast? I'm cooking. <laughs> Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he said it to him three times. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then there's a beautiful picture here where Jesus basically reinstates Peter. He says, Peter, I've got work for you to do. Peter, I know you denied me. I know 
in your big chance to play the hero, you fell apart. You failed miserably. I know you're a big hothead, but deep down you're a chicken. I know that. But listen, I'm not giving up hope on you. I still have work for you to do. I'm going to restore you. So Jesus' response to everything that's happened to him, if we're keeping score at home, is love, it's forgiveness, it's invitation, it's caring for others. And then with Peter, it's like, I know you've got issues, I know you're weak, but I've forgiven you. And we got work to do, so feed my sheep, take care of my people. We could say this, Jesus had choices. Never believe for a moment that all of this was so written in stone that Jesus was just a robot going through all of this. He had choices every single day. And especially in this final week, he had choices. He was the one who was being wronged. He was betrayed. He was cheated on. He was deserted. He was gossiped about. He was mocked. All sorts of things happened to him that I'm sure some people here could relate to. Jesus had choices about how he would respond, whether he would respond with evil, whether he would spit back, throw a fist back, pick up a club and fight. Jesus could have pulled out the God card, right? Called down the angels. Or he could have wiped everybody out with one two-edged word from his mouth, right? The, the power was there. Or would he respond in a different way? In every passage we're given, he chooses to respond with love. He responds with love every single time. We could put it this way. Jesus never once becomes the evil that was done to him. He had choices. He could choose to, but he never once does. You never hear him say, just keep it up, wise guys. Just, right? Laugh it up. Give me time. I got lots of time. I created it, right? I will get even. No, no, he doesn't do it. When he's mocked, he never comes back with a, a mocking retort in response. You never see him responding in kind to what's being done to him. He never stoops to their level. He responds every single time with love. Are we clicking? He responds every single time with love. He's given choices and every response is always to choose the response of love. And he does what no one has ever done before like the author of Hebrews says that he, 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 was, he understands all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in all the same ways we are. He just doesn't give in. He just didn't give in. So what are the implications for this, uh, for us in, in all of this? Well, Jesus said this back in John chapter 16. In verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world... You will have trouble. I was researching that word trouble. It, the word trouble, it's, it's literally an affliction that presses down on you. It's one of those afflictions that just crushes you under pressure. It makes you feel like you're hemmed in with no way of escape, right? I thought about like, you know, the, the little show or the cartoon where you're running, you know, or the character's running down the alley and it gets skinnier and skinnier and skinnier until you're stuck, right? And he's like, we got to try to squeeze through. 
It's that idea. Everything has gotten squeezed, squeezed, squeezed you down, down, where uh, things are distressing you to the point you can barely breathe. Have any of you ever experienced that or experiencing that right now? Distress, affliction, trouble, to where you can barely breathe. Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. Everybody just take a breath. He's overcome the world. Jesus says, I've won. I've won. No one's ever been able to live the perfect life. And no one has ever been able to restrain themselves and hold back from doing just at least one little act of evil. But I have become love incarnate. I have become without fail. I have overcome the world. I've done what no one else has done. I've remained loving. I rose from the dead. I did it. You can like sense a little swagger here in Jesus, can't you? Right? Jesus says, I looked death in the eye and I said, is that the best you got? Amen. Right? Which tells us a couple of things about the cross. Number one, the cross forever changes how the universe fundamentally works. The universe works differently now. See, if the cross is just about uh, getting you out of hell and into heaven, we have missed the cosmic significance of it. Jesus overcomes death. Good defeated evil in one decisive moment in which somebody actually lived a perfectly loving life And never once gave in. Never once gave in. Someone actually did it. They never once gave the finger in traffic. Right? And if you think, well, I never did that. Pride! (laughs) He never once sinned. And then he conquers death through this epic act of selfless love. So we got to get the significance of this. The universe now works in a compl- under a completely new set of rules. Amen. The cross is not just about a person now getting a free pass from their sins. It's about a moment in time when evil was crushed. Its fate was sealed. And even though evil still rages, it has no hope to win. It has nothing to gain to win, right? The real battle has been decisively won. I have overcome the world, he says. And so nothing will ever be the same for us. Nothing will be the same for us. I was just reading on the news, or I was listening to the news the other day, and you know, the, the, the awful conflict going on in Ukraine right now. And the, I, I remember back from, you know, it feels like three years ago, but it was just like a month ago, when the Russians invaded Ukraine there and then they had come and they had surrounded the, the, the capital of Kiev and they were talking about, even, even the people who were, you know, were, were sympathetic to the Ukrainians were kind of like, wow, the Ukrainians, boy, they're, you know, they're really brave. They're really putting up a, a stand, but, you know, bless their heart. There, there's no hope for them. You know, the Russians will take over the capital in a day, maybe two. Maybe they'll be able to hold out two days. And then a week went by and three weeks went by. And you're just watching the news last night. I know things change every moment, but this is just a little parable according to Scott. But the last thing I just saw, they said the Russians are retreating from the capital. They're leaving. It was, it, it, you could effectively say that the battle for Kiev is over. 
The ba- that battle has been, was won against all odds. That battle was won, and they're retreating. But they were saying an interesting thing, that the Russians, as they were retreating, the soldiers were doing these terrible things. They were just, just out of spite. They're just in, you know, bombing buildings and planting booby traps in churches and schools and, and putting landmines all over the road. And so the Ukrainians, as they're coming back, as those residents of the capital are coming back into those little towns where they're recapturing now, the, that, the battle is won, but the world is effectively broken for them. The devastation is awful. They're still dealing with it all. They're still dealing with landmines. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a picture of the world we live in. The, the, the battles, the war has been won. The war has been won. But what if our calling is to move into this broken, broken world that's full of landmines and to be that, the hands and feet of God to help restore, to help love and rebuild, right? Until the day when the king comes himself and recreates everything the way it should be and dries every tear, right? And heals every hurt. That's a picture of the world we live in. So, but when somebody says, so, so-and-so, you know, they, they got me. So I'm going to wait and I'm going to get my revenge, right? They did this to me. I'm going to get my revenge. I'll get even with them. What they're doing is demonstrating that they're living according to the way the universe used to work. It's the way the universe used to work, but the universe for us, for kingdom people, it functions in a fundamentally different way. The universe is fundamentally different because Jesus says, I have overcome it. I've overcome it. Other scripture writers later in, in the Bible started to pick up on the implications of this. So you get to Paul. Now, Jesus has already ascended to heaven. Paul is part of the early church there. He says this in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Overcome evil with good. Because that's what Jesus did. See, Paul's he's just a few years removed now from what just happened. And he's saying, this is what Jesus just did. Go thou and do likewise. Overcome evil with good because he's in you and you're in him, right? And they understood that every single day we're faced with these endless choices of how we're going to respond to the world. How do we respond to the world? Do we overcome the world with more evil? Is that how we do it, right? So somebody does something to me, I'm going to respond with evil. Or maybe I'm even going to ratchet it up a notch so I can win because I want to win right? Or maybe I respond with evil, but it's with righteous motives, so it feels right, right? Or will I respond with good? Do I respond to evil with good? If we don't understand the real significance of the cross, we'll still view life as basically a game of Pong. Anybody alive in the 70s and remember Pong? Right? The most amazing game of my youth. I just I could not believe human beings could come up with this marvel of technology. Back and forth. And that's basically what we do. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back in spades, right? Threaten me? Oh, two can play at that game. Really? Or, or does the cross blow the whistle on the whole game, game and, and call the game itself obsolete? That car cut me off? Oh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't, car. Uh-uh. I'm gonna, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull ahead of them into their lane and slow down, right? Oh, yeah, they are just going to pull over to the side of the rope and weep in repentance. <laughs> or does the cross 
respond to an act of disrespect with blessing because in Christ we're already victorious. Amen. Maybe your spouse says something snarky or, or hurtful while you're getting ready for work and it's just grinding inside of you, right? Because they brought it up. They brought up the past again. They brought it up again. And all day long, you're thinking of it because you know, you know that little dig that will make them pay emotionally. Mm, It is choice. You've been thinking about it all day, how to bring that particularly devastating piece of history of theirs. You'll make them sorry. You know the card to play. You know how to push the buttons, right? After all, they deserve it. It's just justice. Or does the cross mean that the the universe fundamentally works different now? for us so that we can respond with father forgive them not just because they don't know what they're doing none of us know what we're doing forgive them forgive me so we have these endless choices how to respond do I have to win the argument do I need to make them feel guilty so that they they know what they deserve do I need to advertise my own self-righteousness so the people know I'm on the right side. Or or, or do I believe down in my soul that I don't have to win because Jesus already has? I want to paint one more picture to drive this home. In Colossians, Apostle Paul again, he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, I love this scripture, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this term public spectacle, this is a, a fascinating phrase because uh, he's left naked in public to die, which is a spectacle. That would be a public spectacle to say the least, it, it, which basically in our day, we would say Rome won, Jesus zero, right? Rome is, looks like they've won the game here. It sure looks like a public victory by those who wanted him dead, but it it, but, but here's the thing, if you can do the worst possible thing to somebody, if you can strip them naked, mock them, murder them in public, if you can do the worst possible thing to somebody and they still live, who wins? Amen. Right? Jesus is like, you gave me your best shot possible. You killed me. But as far as I can see, I'm cooking fish over here. <laughs> right? And this is why the public aspect of this is so important, because it means that it doesn't matter what you do to this Jesus, if you, because if you, even if you do the worst possible thing to somebody in public and they still overcome it, if you kill somebody publicly and they still live, well, then it goes from being this public defeat to a public victory, which is why they speak of Jesus in terms of victory and triumphing here. What seems to be this total failure of mission. Like it's all in, this is ending in embarrassing defeat, right? Jesus flips the whole embarrassing public spectacle on its head so that the moment of his defeat is actually the declaration of his victory. Amen. We could put it this way. The forces that appear to be winning actually lose. And the person who appears to be losing actually wins. How? How has that victory come about? Notice what it says. He made a public spectacle, triumphing over them by the what? Notice the writer here doesn't even reference the resurrection. 
He triumphed by the cross. He, why? Because on that cross, he is exposing the inevitable result of the world's strategy of, of fear and death and shame and power and control. And Jesus is exposing it is ultimately self-defeating. That whole strategy, it, it comes to nothing. So in their moment of triumph, where they thought they had him, the forces of evil actually lose here. Because the love of God always wins. Amen. The love of God always wins. So, so the guys at work or, or the, the kids at school, they're mocking you because you're a person of faith. Everybody's getting in their little jab, right? And you're apparently losing according to the, the office scorecard because you're the freak Christian, right? What the cross reveals is that actually the one who looks like they're losing, even though evil and death and injustice seems to have won, because we walk with God, God takes care of us. God has us. And no matter what the circumstances look like, no matter what the world dishes out, even if it dishes out its worst and we are killed, love and grace will always have the last word because Jesus overcomes. So my friends, the cross is victory in disguise. It's victory in disguise. The universal announcement that once and for all, Jesus has overcome the world. And if he's in you and you're in him, like the scripture writers keep telling us, well, then uh, that means you have overcome the world. Amen. He's overcome the world. He's in you. You're in him. That means you have overcome the world. You have already overcome the worst that the world will be able to throw at you. Amen. What's the best you got? Come on. Come on, world. What do you got? Persecution? Betrayal? Please. Right? Abuse? Death? been there, done that. Through Jesus, we have overcome the world. So you win. That's right. But now remember this, kingdom people. Victory, this victory of ours, doesn't look like the world's definition of victory. Okay? It won't mean that you're left standing over your enemies, you know, one foot on his chest and sword held high in the sky while he's begging for mercy and tears. No, no. There is no us versus them in the kingdom. This victory, think about it, this victory was won by a single overcoming act of love. And so that victory continues to shine through us through our overcoming acts of love. That's how we have the victory. As soon as we give that up, we decide to play the world's game, we've already lost. Because it's a battle we weren't asked to fight. And they're better at fighting it. That's not the battle we were called to fight. Right. We don't fight evil with evil because love overcomes evil. It's the only thing that can overcome evil. Love overcomes betrayal. Love overcomes persecution. Love overcomes, yes, even death. Amen. Even death has lost its sting because the God who is love has overcome the world. So the cross is God's way of saying, listen, listen, listen. I, I know what they did to you. I know what they said about you. I know how they abused you when you were young. I know it. I saw it. I was there. I was weeping with you. It's God saying, I know what your ex 
put you through. I know what they said to your face. And I know what you said back. I know. Love overcomes it all. Love overcomes it all. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you believe that? Yes. Or is this just a nice little religion we belong to? Do we really believe that if the cross is real and Jesus really did take the best shot that the world had and turn it into a moment of victory, then you're actually not at the mercy of what happens to you. You actually have choices. Just like Jesus had choices. You have choices. Yeah, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to get mocked. You're going to get betrayed. You're going to get criticized. You're going to have people who let you down when you needed them the most. You'll have a hundred opportunities every week to make a choice. Will you choose the way of the world or the way of the cross? Will you retaliate? Will you storm out? Will you slam the door? Will you draw the sword? Will you hit back? Will you play the passive aggressive card? Or will you choose the way of real victory, the way of love that overcomes the world? The cross means it's actually possible for you to choose this. And that may seem hard to believe. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that. The cross means it's actually possible because the Jesus who suffered everything we could imagine and more, he responded in love and his spirit is now living inside you. And so you can too. Amen. You can too. Will you bow your head with me as we pray? <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy today. So many of us, Lord, are faced with situations, with people, with temptations every day that tempt us to respond to evil with evil, Lord. For some of us, Lord, it probably won't even wait till we're out of the parking lot this morning. That moment where everything within us wants to react, to play the world's game, to try to even the score. But Lord, we acknowledge something happened 2,000 years ago that changes the whole way the universe works. So we celebrate that, Lord God. We're, we're going to wrestle with it and we want to go deeper into this. So help us over the next few weeks as we do, Father God, to open up our eyes, Lord, to what else you might be teaching us through the cross, what you might be teaching us through the resurrection. And we thank you, Lord God, that the story didn't just end with a, a beaten, bloodied, crucified Messiah, but a, with a Jesus that is fully dressed, who's saying, take heart, I've risen. You want some fish? Because I've overcome the world. Thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you... Help us to live this out, not just talk about it, not just know stuff, because we want to be people known not just for stuff that we carry around in our heads, Lord God, but we, we want to be known for the ways that we actually live when it's most difficult toward the people who are most difficult, Father. Help us to love others, Lord, with the love that overcomes the world. And for this, we praise you. In the name of the crucified and resurrected Savior, everybody said, amen, amen. If you'll stand to your feet with me, friends, our prayer partners are coming down right now. If there's anything at all that you need prayer about, we would love to pray with you. And uh, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today and just take that first step toward understanding and, and living this, this sort of Jesus life, these guys would love to pray with you and help you uh, take that step. 
Uh, and if you want to send us your prayer request, we would love for you to send us. There's a lot of different ways to send it to us. It's such a blessing. I, I've used it myself, and it's such a blessing to know. You can send a, any kind of prayer request to any of these ways, and I mean within 10 minutes, uh, there's like 100 people who are instantly going to going to war with you, uh, spiritual warfare with you, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So send us your prayer request. Amen. My friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. May you make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May he lift up his countenance and help you walk in the victory that he's already won for you on the cross this week. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.